Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 119. In Africa, you've got 600 million people without any access to electricity at all. And that's not to say, you know, South Africa, where I am at the moment, where we suffer from rolling blackouts of up to 12 hours a day. My name is Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. Sustainability and ESG and trade finance doesn't always wash down well. In the past 12 months or so, we've seen ESG companies rise and fall. We've seen framework being created and dished, and some even branding ESG in trade as slow, lackluster, and as greenwashing. Back in February this year, I had the opportunity to interview Joe Wissing, who is a board member at ITFA and leading the sustainability movement there and also Roberto Lever, Asian Development Bank's Trade and Supply Chain Finance Relationship Manager. And we discussed the slow progression of ESG frameworks and how dirty financing still needs to happen to support the transition. Today, we're moving the conversation further and we're talking about sustainable trade finance in Africa, why it's so crucial and how players across the continent are creating homegrown African solutions. Many leaders across transaction banking state that creating sustainable finance standards, definitions, taxonomies, and ultimately regulation are amongst the top risk considerations for banks and corporates as they really try to navigate those greenwashing pitfalls. Following on from the capital markets and the ECA ESG principles and frameworks, the International Chamber of Commerce, or ICC, recently issued its positioning white paper. It started back in 2021 with the Wave 1 paper, following on just at the end of last year on their standards for sustainable trade and sustainable trade finance to really try and bring sustainable trade finance into the ESG pantheon. The It for White paper on African sustainable trade finance was also published last year, raising concerns that there was too much first world confirmation bias in global ESG trade finance proposals. As we all know, trade finance must be an inclusive industry. It's important to listen to Western countries and companies and their opinions, but there needs to be an effort to bring in African voices and ideas. So today I'm really happy to introduce George Wilson from Investec to discuss the state of African trade finance and ESG initiatives. George, welcome back to Trade Finance Talks. Thanks, Tepesh. Such a pleasure. So to our audience, a quick introduction. Can you talk a bit more about yourself, what you do and your background? I started 25 years ago as a barrister in London before becoming a merchant banker in several banks in the UK, Hong Kong and more recently South Africa. I most recently moved with my team to Investec in South Africa, and we specialize in trade finance with a deep specialization in African trade finance. I'm also the chair of the ITFA African Regional Committee, the lead for the African ESG standards subworking groups for both ITFA and BAFT, and the co-author of many articles and white papers on African sustainable trade finance and the ESG problems we face in African trade as practitioners and looking for workable African solutions. Thank you very much, George. So definitely the expert on this topic. So let's just start more openly. Why is trade finance in Africa so important, I guess, versus the rest of the world? 
it's really the most direct route to sustainable development in Africa. In the original spirit of trade, not aid, actually sustainable. So 40% of GDP growth in these African economies comes from trade finance and trading. The MSMEs, who are the core merchants on the continent, employ up to 85% of the entire workforce. Those employees ultimately become consumers, pay tax, and it literally becomes self-sustaining development. What we can see of how this has practically worked in the rest of the world, in the last 30 years, China and India have effectively traded their way out of poverty. So there's been the most remarkable transformation where 40% of the world's population was in abject poverty. And that's moved to 10% as China and India have traded their way out of destitution. That remaining 10%, I'm afraid, is in Africa. Thanks, George. And I know we talked about that when we met up at it for last year. I guess we also alluded to what the African trade finance gap is. Can you re-explain what that is, please? It's an insufficient supply of risk capital and liquidity for African trade financing activities. African traders just can't get the trade finance credit they need from their African banks to grow their businesses. If we do want to resolve problems like the trade finance gap, I guess we'd intuitively want to understand its origin. So what are some of the causes of this gap in Africa? It's not that banks are being difficult. It should be the bread and butter business of African banks to provide their trading clients with trade finance. The reality is that only African domestic banks can actually give trade finance facilities to African traders. They're the only entities on the planet that can touch them from a KYC perspective, can analyze them for credit, and can take local currency security over their stock or or debtors. The reason why they're not giving those facilities is not that they're being difficult. It's because of the imposition of global regulations. Global regulations that were really very sensible and made perfect sense as far as international US investment banks were concerned after the financial crisis, things like Basel. Unfortunately, when those regulations were imposed on Africa, they had a very negative effect on African transactional banking, which is very, very different from what was envisaged for those international banks. It's led to the imposition of progressive Basel 1, 2, 3, 4, and AML global regulations in the first instance really led to a international financiers deserting the African continent. They needed to de-risk because of the compliance risks that came with that global regulation. And there was a progressive reduction in the available capital and liquidity, particularly dollar liquidity, the currency of trade finance, international trade finance, that led the, in turn, the imposition of Basel on the African banks by their own regulators, incentivized them actually to move away from providing trade finance to African traders and SMEs, and instead buy government bonds, because that's what the regulation really incentivized. The African banks had a choice. They could either use their scarce capital and liquidity to offer loss-making trade finance facilities to their merchant clients, or they could buy government bonds, fulfill all their regulatory ratio requirements, and at zero risk, zero RWAs, and make a 15% return. So hence the gap. 
No, I mean, it's very interesting. Even now we talk about the global financial crisis and the the steps the regulators took to try and prevent banks from going into a bank run or, or collapsing. And then you see what is happening today with regards to, I guess, restrictions, capital requirements, and also the treatment of trade finance assets from a capital allocation perspective. I guess that's definitely had unintended consequences, as you've seen for Africa. I guess another piece is around the regulation around ESG or sustainable finance. I think there's definitely been a hope post COP26 that a set of global regulations would come into effect. This hasn't really happened so far, right? Especially for trade finance and also for Africa. Yeah, there are really two core reasons for that. One is that ESG industry incursion into sustainable trade finance has become bogged down. That's really because there is no consensus around standards and definitions. And there has been a conspicuous failure to launch, frankly. The second reason, particularly with respect to Africa, is is that it frankly just fundamentally doesn't work for Africa. And I guess this leads me on to the next point, which is around the ITFA white paper, which raised the alarm on African ESG trade finance. Can you talk about why it doesn't work at the moment for Africa? The main reason is no one asked any African trade practitioners to take part. It was all really first world policymakers. It was very well-meaning, but ultimately, as far as Africa is concerned, completely uninformed. And it was founded on these kind of dual fallacy of the evidence fallacy and subjective bias that I think we will come to later in the discussion. Sure. I guess, can you talk me through what might be wrong with a so-called cookie cutter slash global approach to forming ESG standards or ESG frameworks at a a global level and why this kind of approach might not work for the African continent? Yeah, so three parts to this. The first is that products utterly different. The markets themselves and the way that they function are very, very different. And finally, the subjective interpretations and priorities of the authors of those standards and ESG frameworks, again, are fundamentally different. Thanks, George. I guess... Going on to the products, so trade finance is often described as a short-term debt product. Can you explain how those products are different? The ESG frameworks were built upon really debt and project finance and ECA, long-term, large, lumpy transactional frameworks. They're not equivalent to trade finance. ESG experts often attempted to revert to project finance of examples of trade finance. The project finance is not trade finance. There's a significant difference and a really important difference between the ability to measure the environment KPIs for a 250 million five-year green bond and the completely different set of trade finance, particularly African trade finance, where you have millions of domestic, regional and deep sea trade facilities, SME invoices, and each of those has a buyer, a seller, the underlying goods, the purpose of the transaction and the mode of transit. Along with that, Africa is just not digitally native in the same way that Western capital markets are. In Africa, you've got 600 million people without any 
access to electricity at all. And that's not to say, you know, South Africa, where I am at the moment, where we suffer from rolling blackouts of up to 12 hours a day, but we have access to electricity. You actively don't want digital legal entity identification and LEIs because for large periods of the day, you're not going to be able to actually trade. And then there's just the sheer scale. In Nigeria alone, there are 30.7 million MSMEs. I've been searching for an analogy. The best one I can come up with is, is it's the difference between being a beekeeper looking after trade finance in its very granular form and farming out a prize bull as a large long-term capital markets green bond. Mm. Yeah, I get it. The prize bull is your typical longer term project or export finance deal versus a small guarantee or letter of credit. But surely some of those trade product mechanics still work the same. You think, you know, traditional trade instruments, invoice discounting, standby letter of credit, demand guarantees are the working capital facilities. Why do you insist they're so different perhaps in Africa versus in the Western world? African trade finance and African trade is not the imagined analogue of first world trade finance. The parties are very different. The volumes are, are considerably larger. There's no digitization access. FX and capital and liquidity costs are of paramount importance in a way they're just not in developed markets. Again, to use a, I'll try and offer an analogy to capture this. I promise you that driving downtown in Lagos is very different from driving around Brussels. Apparently, it's the same activity, but Africa is just different. No, I mean, totally understand that. So what exactly do you mean by Western subjective interpretations and those different priorities when we talk about African sustainable finance, George? Because there was no African input into the ESG frameworks and regs in the first place, they came with entirely Western political perspectives on the reductive interpretations of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, into those ESG regulations. There's been a great deal of unintended, I'm sure, but confirmation bias in the prioritization of green and net zero SDG 13, climate action, and Paris Agreement in in prioritizing the E in ESG above all of the rest of the sustainable development goals. The key insight is that ESG is not the science everyone assumes it is. It is fundamentally subjective and it's victim to personal bias. George, can you give any examples of how ESG ratings can be so subjective? The prime example is Tesla. Tesla was simultaneously rated by three separate ESG rating agencies, MSCI, S&P, and Sustainalytics. They all had perfect digital information available to them at their fingertips, all the financial data, and they had very sophisticated algorithms to make these ratings. They had armies of very expensive expert accountants and ESG consultants. And ultimately, they came up with three completely different ratings, top, middle, and flat worst. Now, they had all the same inputs, but completely different ESG ratings. And that's because it's fundamentally subjective. And how does this subjectivity actually play out when we talk about African trade finance? 
it doesn't matter if we have independent auditors who have all of the data, which is actually impossible to collect in Africa. It doesn't matter if we try and hide the subjectivity in algorithms. The weights within those algorithms are effectively subjective themselves. This subjectivity is compounded into the resolution of dialectically conflicting component parts of trade, which is a common theme in particularly African trade finance. We often have one particular component of a trade which is very positive from a sustainability perspective. Perhaps it's social impact or economic development. In exactly the same transaction, there's a conflicting part which is often around some of the environmental impact, which is very negative. That resolution between what you prioritize as being more important, the positive social and economic impact of a trade transaction versus its environmental impact. That resolution is, again, fundamentally subjective. You're kind of compounding subjectivity upon subjectivity. There's also a point here which is emerging more and more where Western subjective interpretations are appropriate in a Western context. Africa, I'm afraid, is less and less aligned. Africa has different economic development priorities. They're largely unimagined by Western ESG consultants. More and more, the African continent has become the host of a political competition between the West and BRICS, particularly China. But you can see that in some of the recent political machinations with BRICS and the visit of Vladimir Putin to South Africa. Without going into all of the hairy detail around that, it's clear that we're not really aligned in the way that I think a lot of Western policymakers think that the African continent is. The El Dorado of objective global ESG standardization is more and more of an illusion because of this kind of subjectivity. And Africa needs its own sustainable trade finance framework to work using its own approach and its own priorities in establishing ESG credentials. George, are you suggesting that history will essentially repeat itself if global policymakers press on with global ESG trade regulation? Well, yes, exactly. We have seen this movie before with Basel and the AML regulations that came out from 2010 onwards. There was a response from the global community and particularly international financiers where they simply de-risked out of Africa because of the impossible and unprofitable compliance standards that came with that imposition of global regulation on African realities. It effectively caused the commercial ingredients of the trade gap in the first place that we discussed at the beginning. It also caused international financiers to de-risk African trade and African financiers to ignore ESG in trade finance. They fundamentally see it as, as more compliance and inflationary, and they're incentivized away from trade as a consequence. The other really important aspect of this is the multilaterals who came in and filled the void from the de-risking won't be able to help in future sustainable development in Africa, and particularly through trade finance, because they're looking for ESG evidence as preconditions of their support and particularly their trade programs. 
it's interesting. And I think we'll continue that conversation. I must shamelessly plug a, a webinar that you will be in, talk where we explore the role of multilaterals, export credit agencies, the public and private insurers, funds and banks, and their specific roles and how we can really tackle this trade finance gap. So you'll find that on tradefinanceglobal.com forward slash tradecast when you can sign up to listen to the webinar in July. I guess also what you said, George, completely counters some of the uh, sustainable development goals and sustainable development peace in Africa. And I know the It for Paper calls this the paradox and really calls out for an African solution to an African problem. I guess this all plays out in what's called a just transition. And we started doing that podcast with Joe and uh, Roberto earlier on this year. Can you briefly explain how and why this is called the just transition? So following on from COP27, there was a continuation of a remote Western imagining of Africans' transition to renewables, which candidly won't work. This is, I think, most eloquently put in in NJ Ayuk's excellent book called A Just Transition. And he points out that Africa won't, simply won't be able to jump from 900 million people across the continent burning wood and kerosene and animal dung to heat their homes and cook their food and jump directly into a high-tech wind and solar, a renewables future. As he points out, Africa needs to, to diversify its economies and needs a stable baseload of energy for the industrialization, which that economic development is going to be founded upon. It's going to need that and particularly that kind of baseload energy for refining the enormous energy requirements and constant energy requirements of refining the energy minerals and mines and production of those renewable products, things like wind turbines, solar panels, for that transition to be really part of the African story. That really goes back to this sort of beneficiation point. At the moment, energy minerals are effectively mined, nearly all of them, like 80-90% of them, are effectively mined in Africa and Latin America. And then they're shipped to China, where they are refined, they manufacture all of the actual products, including EVs, and then they ship those back to the West. And they do all of that using fossil fuels. At the moment, it's a, it was an astonishing revelation to me, but it just one EV battery requires 250 tons of ore. That's just the ore itself, not the material you need to shift in order to get to the ore. All of that ore is then shipped to China, where China, which again does up to 80 or 90 percent of the production of renewables equipment and products, that it's shipped to China and China is using its own developed energy supply in order to refine all of that and produce all of the renewables technology. It's also quite, quite astonishing that in order to do that, China's commissioning two coal power plants a week in 2022 in order to power that renewables transformation. What's even more worrying is that very apposite analysis points out the imagined transitions to renewables on a global scale is just not physically possible. We just don't have the mining capacity. If we were to go from just 3% of renewables, which is their contribution to global energy supply at the moment, to just 10% renewables energy, that 10% is the same number, by the way, as what's being generated using burning wood and animal dung. But if we were to just move from that 3 
3% and then the needle moved to just 10%, it would require an impossible 1,000% or more increase in the extraction of those energy minerals. Imagined just transition, when you look into the details, and certainly in Africa, it needs a lot more analysis and a lot more of an African perspective before we just run away with some of the imaginings I think came out of COP27. Yeah, thank you, George. And I mean, look, shocking numbers. You you think about the size of one EV battery and requiring 205 tons of of ore. It's it's unimaginable. 250. 250, sorry. What are you proposing? I mean, you sit on the Baftonet for African regional committees and you're proposing some practical solutions to address head-on the sustainable trade finance conundrum in Africa. What are you proposing? Following on from the ICC white paper and the Wave 1 pilot entitled Sustainable Trade Financing, BAFT and ITFA have created global working groups. The ESG or Sustainable Trade Standards and Definitions working groups in both BAFT and ITFA have formed sub-African sub-working groups to tackle exactly this problem. We've come up with a proposed practical solution that will work in Africa. If ESG sustainability decisions are subjective and impossible to independently capture all of the data, as is imagined in the current ESG frameworks, the idea is that sustainable trade finance designations can be made subjectively by African trade financiers on the ground from an African context. It's kind of equivalent to KYC, which must be done by African banks on the ground, but they have all of the information, they're regulated, audited. You know, Africans are capable of that level of governance. They can really give the best assessment of sustainability in Africa and resolve the inherent conflicts that necessarily come with the territory. Thank you, George. And thanks very much. It seems like local solutions are needed for these local problems. I guess one concluding question, is there light, perhaps not powered by an EV battery, at the end of a tunnel, if we can really get behind African trade practitioners for solving the African sustainable trade finance conundrum? Well, yes. The first step to recovery is to admit that you've got a problem. If we can do that, then we can, I hope, reframe to African realities. Once we've got an African voice at the table offering African solutions to the African problems, as you've put it, we really can have a shot at incentivizing that risk capital back into African trade finance, closing the gap, and look to success and delivering to the original intent of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. George Wilson, thank you very much for joining us on Trade Finance Talks. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for really unpicking and going into detail on really where we're at with African sustainable trade finance. I think we can definitely conclude that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And I guess to trade practitioners, both globally and locally, stay in touch, communicate and engage, because I think that's the priority here. And I think there are several definitions and lenses that you can look at sustainable trade finance. And I guess keep asking questions because it's not as straightforward as it seem on the outside. George, thanks for joining us. Take care. Thanks, Dipesh. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com.